Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine still looms with officials saying it could happen within several days. Secretary of State Antony Blinken appeared before the United Nations and laid out what a Russian invasion could look like, saying that missiles and bombs could drop across Ukraine, communications would be jammed, and cyber attacks could shut down key institutions. Officials said that Russia could be trying to set up a pretext, such as a violent event, that could justify an invasion. For more on all this, we'll speak to Nahal Tusi, senior foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Well, basically, he said, look, uh, this is a moment of peril. Uh, I'm here to try to stop a war uh, as opposed to trying to start one. And he basically said that Russia is very much built up its troops. There's just no real sign that it's actually done any sort of withdrawal of troops, as the Russians had been signaling earlier this week. Um, in fact, we hear there's like 7,000 more troops <laughs> that right. have been brought in the last few days. And that, you know, if it invades, it's going to be based on a, a pretext, uh, some sort of a false operation, like claiming that, you know, the Ukrainians shelled Russian points or something like that. It's going to involve aerial bombardment and, you know, a number of other moves that he is predicting uh, the Russians will take. You know, it's sort of a common sense in the sense that war nowadays is increasingly hybrid and a lot of it is about information and manipulation of information. But it really is something to hear it just laid out like that. That's really interesting. You made mention in the article, too, about You know, so Blinken coming in and kind of giving the step by step of how it would go really is our chance to counter the disinformation propaganda from Russia in as close to real time as possible. And that's just an interesting notion because we even heard, I guess, on the Russian side, they're saying we're ratcheting up the tensions because we keep responding to everything. Other people have said we've been going back and forth with this for a few weeks now that the attack could be imminent. But, you know, is it doing more harm than good trying to counter as we go? You know, uh, I talked to a lot of people about this, and the sense still is that it's doing more good to do this than harm. The idea being that the U.S. wants to prevent Russia from having a leg to stand on when it comes to deciding to invade or writing the history of the world And so the sense is that if we can just lift the veil on this plan or point out this operation or predict what he's going to do, it basically makes it harder for him uh, to do it. And by him, I mean Russian leader Vladimir Putin. And so so far the sense is that among the intelligence community officials and others, that it's a good thing that we are being so proactive on the information front. There are some who are a little worried. They wonder if we're releasing too much information. They wonder about the credibility of the U.S. if none of these things come to pass. Will we look like the boy that cried wolf? But I think at this point, you know, they have decided, they being the Biden administration, has decided that it is better off telling people what's going to happen or in a bid to prevent it, essentially. And it's so tough because, you know, we've seen the increasing of troops on the Russian side. I think, uh, you know, they're getting shipments of blood sent in, you know, in case there's casualties. You know, all this is signaling that there could be some violence going on. And, And you mentioned, you know, this pretext for an invasion. So we were also hearing Ukraine and Russia going back and forth, saying that there are already some shelling going back. 
you know, that they're trying to hit each other. The Ukraine accused Russia of shelling a kindergarten. I, I, I've heard that there's already some pictures circulating around from that. Yeah, that's right. There were reports that a couple of people were wounded. I think they were adults in the kindergarten shelling. The Russians, you know, claim it's the other side. I mean, it's it's really hard to know who to believe, in part because it's hard to access some of the sites. But at the same time, in a way, this is like, the most open source friendly war as well, because there's so many, you know, individuals and companies and private firms and all these other things who are able to actually track this stuff in real time, whether it's social media or through satellite pictures or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this is, it's one of those situations where, look, at the end of the day, if the Russians want to invade and they say something happened and we insisted it didn't, like, they don't necessarily care. Like, they are going to do what they want to do because to them, and will justify the means, right? right. And so I, I think to a degree, this is um, one of the reasons that the U.S. is doing this is to keep allies on board to, and to make sure that when we get, give out all this information that other countries, even if they're not necessarily our allies, are going to look at this stuff and be like, okay, wait a minute, this is not cool, Russia. And so you can have as much of a united front against Moscow as possible. As we mentioned, you know, we're trying to fight some of that disinformation in real time as close to it as possible. How is this playing out in the Russian media? Because I know a lot of the Russian media is still state-owned, things like that. What are we seeing on that front? So much of Russian media is state-controlled. I mean, they basically write things from the Russian perspective without a lot of questioning. For instance, uh, <laughs> uh, this was my, one of my favorites. You know, Russia recently cut back its staff at its embassy in Ukraine, right? But the way that the Russian media wrote it was Russia is optimizing its staffing at its <laughs> embassy in Ukraine. They never actually said in, in you know, the story that I read on, on one of the sites, like, that they're cutting staff. They just said, they're optimizing it. They, and they just went with that. And there was no questioning of it. And so it's this kind of thing, you, you know, you're also seeing them carry just kind of, you know, statements that the Russian uh, officials are alleging, you know, about like, I mean, th this in particular is really egregious, like uh, uh, um, accusing Ukraine of genocide, which is just, there's just no basis for that. These types of things are, you know, they, they don't get the kind of critical reception that the U.S. would if it was to try to pull something like that. I mean, frankly, when the U.S. is releasing the information, a lot of journalists have been questioning its intelligence because, you know, we remember what happened with Iraq and the weapons of mass destruction. And while there is certainly reporting of the allegations from the U.S., there is some skepticism in trying to bring more context to it, whereas you just mm -hmm. don't see that really on the Russian media side. Yeah, I mean, it's a very tough situation. All signs are pointing to that something could be happening very imminent. President Biden has said it. All of our officials have said it. You know, it's going to be one of these wait and see moments uh, until it just actually well, does happen. And and, and then the fighting continues. It could already be happening. There are cyber attacks being reported in Ukraine, massive yeah. ones. There have been other things that have been that just we, we could already have started the war. So let's not let's not forget that. Nahal Tusi, senior foreign affairs correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again. Public health experts are worried about the next crisis that could overwhelm the healthcare system, a wave of cancers that we didn't catch. The rates of cancer screenings dropped over the pandemic and have not recovered. Many put off regular screenings and may have missed a diagnosis that could save their lives. For more on this problem, we'll speak to Dylan Scott, 
senior correspondent at Vox. So the impetus for this story was a uh, study that was published in the journal Cancer in December of 2021, so just a few months ago, that showed just how precipitously cancer screenings had dropped over the course of 2020. So for things like colonoscopies, prostate biopsies, you know, chest scans, those kinds of things that catch major cancers, they practically stopped by, you know, in the spring of 2020 when, like you said, you know, hospitals were preparing for their first real surge of COVID. Nobody knew at the time how bad it was going to be. And we didn't really have any experience with trying to both manage a surge of COVID cases and trying to keep other hospital operations up and running. So, you know, hospitals were extra cautious and tended to cancel all kinds of things, you know, elective services, which actually often include these kinds of screenings. Um, And so there was this really dramatic drop off uh, early in 2020. But what was really worrying to the authors of this study was that over the course of the year, you know, as we got a little more accustomed to living with the virus, we did not like get back to normal levels by the end of 2020. Like we were still adding to the deficit in missed screenings by the end of the year. And so, you know, this is the most recent data that we have, but the implication is that this was not just like a momentary blip in the spring of 2020, that there's been a more kind of permanent setback in terms of the cancer screenings that we want to be doing. And so, you know, I talked with a number of doctors, you know, gastroenterologist in California, an oncologist here at Georgetown University in D.C., and they told me that sort of their anecdotal experiences certainly line up with the data, that they were seeing, you know, patients come in with more advanced disease because they had delayed going to get a screenings. You know, several of them shared stories of people who had first noticed symptoms in the spring or summer of 2020, but either, you know, because they were worried about the virus or because their primary care doctor told them, like, you know, honestly, it's going to be hard to get in for a colonoscopy or something like that right now. They just waited and waited. And by the time they finally went in, you know, maybe in late 2021, their cancer was a lot farther along than it would have been if they'd been able to get seen earlier in 2020. From that study that you mentioned, new diagnoses declined 13 to 23 percent, depending on the cancer. And obviously, that's not because people were not developing the cancer. It's just we weren't catching it because of these lack of screenings. And the big worry is that this is going to carry over over the course of many years. You know, as you mentioned, the screenings didn't catch back up like they were pre-pandemic levels. So we're behind there. Backlogs of screenings are currently going on right now where people have finally were able to get uh, an appointment to get their screening. But it's months out. And so these backlogs on backlogs they think that this could be a problem for a few years. Yeah, totally. I mean, I talked to one uh, one hospital CEO in, in the Plain States who said one of her, you know, GI doctors had actually been kind of temporarily hired away by a uh, bigger hospital in the Kansas City area just to like perform colonoscopies like all day, every day, as much as possible, which kind of just indicates how much the uh, how deep the bag clock is getting. And to your point, like it does have this kind of compounding effect. There are still obviously people now who are like first noticing symptoms and trying to get in to get screened. And, you know, I talked to this doctor in Georgetown who said he knew of somebody who kind of like first come in, first came in contact with the health system in September because there was something she was worried about. And as of December, she still hadn't been able to get through 
to have a screening because the health system was still trying to get through all these other people who maybe, you know, noticed symptoms even before she had. So it does have this kind of, you know, it layers on top of each other. Um, And so I think that is why these doctors are really nervous about what we're going to see in the coming years. And something that I I found really interesting with all of this is this is according to a federal study. This is from 2018. So, you know, things could have changed. But only 8% of Americans are receiving all the preventative services that are recommended for them. And a lot of this has to do with establishing a relationship with your primary care doctor. A lot of people are just not doing that. So, you know, we're talking about people who would have gotten these screenings, but then there's people who are just not in the system that same way to get those preventative screenings. And, you know, I think that, you know, one of the doctors I talked to said, like, you know, I've been born again on the importance of screenings because of uh, what I've been seeing over the last year or so. And, you know, I think there's been a kind of, I would say, a healthy debate uh, in within U.S. healthcare about, like, are we screening too much? You know, there's been some revisions to things like uh, mammograms because there's been some kind of rethinking about how much we need to be screening people. But I think what's particularly scary about this moment is we're going to be going through kind of an unplanned natural experiment, you know, with, with real people's lives at stake. Um, and as one of the other doctors that I spoke to, that one of the, the co-authors of the cancer journal studies to put it, you know, it's going to be years before we really understand the implications of this disruption to healthcare in general and cancer and pre- other preventive screening specifically. And by that time, you know, for thousands of people, potentially, it's going to be too late. So, you know, that's kind of the, the un- those are the uncharted waters that we're all trying to navigate right now. Well, obviously, we don't want the healthcare system to be taxed anymore, but this could be the next coming wave, right? As we've been talking about and, uh, you know, take it as a warning sign. If you have delayed any of these screenings, it might be wise to start uh, prepping for them. Uh, You know, you mentioned in the article, it could take some months for the current backlogs to clear. So it could take some time for you to get another appointment. So get on that stuff. Dylan Scott, senior correspondent covering healthcare at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. After leaving their jobs in the Great Resignation, what are the jobs that people actually want? According to Google search data, many of the top how-to-become searches last year were real estate agent, flight attendant, therapist, and notary. While the search data doesn't indicate if people actually picked up those jobs, it does track with other pandemic trends. For more on the jobs that Americans want, we'll speak to Ronnie Mola, senior data reporter at Recode. Just to be clear, it's not necessarily because people Google it, they're going to, you know, become X, Y, or Z, but it is like an indicator that like the first thing you do if you have interest in something is sort of look it up online. So the top one that we saw was real estate agent. That along with notary and electrician, you could kind of chalk up to the housing boom. Lots and lots of people during the pandemic went out and tried to buy a house. A real estate agent became sort of a really glamorous and uh, lucrative position to have. I don't know if you have a house or have tried to get any electrical work done. It's impossible. (laughs) My whole pandemic life has was in search of a house. That was one of the things that I did. And definitely those uh, top three things that you mentioned right now, whether it be a notary, real estate agent or electrician, anybody doing any type of maintenance in high demand. Yeah, you have this uh, economic impetus for it. Like, uh, it makes a lot of sense why people would do it. You also have a lot of people rethinking what they want to do with their lives. Do they want to work for someone else? And those are also some jobs that are kind of on your own terms. You could be your own boss. You could work when you want to work. It gives you a little bit more freedom. So you could see why those are sort of attractive as well. 
let me rattle off the top uh, searched how to become on Google in 2021, just so we can get a sense of it. So it's real estate agent, flight attendant, notary, therapist, pilot, firefighter, personal trainer, psychiatrist, physical therapist, and electrician. And to the point of what we're talking about, right, it mirrored a lot of what was going on through the pandemic and the needs, the demands that were going on at the time. Before we proceed, though, tell me what the searches were like before the pandemic. It seems like we're getting this shift away from the gig economy to things that were a little more stable, it seemed like. Some of these things continued from like they were always popular, like realtor was on there before. It's just much more popular now. You could see the search trend over time. But before there were things like actor, model, Uber driver. Those have kind of gone by the wayside, at least as far as the top most searched ones. And you see these sort of like practical ones on there. One thing I noted in the article is a lot of these are pretty straightforward when it comes to training. You know, you could go into training to become a flight attendant or take a program to become a realtor or to become an electrician. It's, it's not a four-year degree. There's like an endpoint insight and you have this sort of lucrative, not necessarily lucrative, but you have this sort of, you have a career potential at yeah. the end of it. Yeah. And like I said, it's a, a, almost a shift away from some of the gig economy stuff, which was being hailed mm-hmm. as so great at the time. The flexibility, be your own boss, all this kind of stuff was in that. And, you know, the pandemic really made people think of their priorities and want something a little more stable, it seemed like. You mentioned flight attendant and obviously pilot was on that list. This is coming at an interesting time with what's going on with the airline industry. It's it's rebounding right now. Mm-hmm. They laid off a lot of people and they need those employees. Right. That, that was a kind of strange thing on the list because, you know, that's a little counterintuitive. No one was traveling during the pandemic, but the problem was that a lot of airlines gave a lot of their you know, pilots and flight attendants and crew early retirement. So they just didn't have a lot of people to work when travels has rebounded. So now there's flight school for pilots. There's all these training programs. They're raising wages a lot. They're doing all they can to sort of get people back into this industry. And I think potential employees are taking note. Uh, you mentioned before, I want to get to something about Uber and you know the gig economy. I yeah. think... People were seeing the holes in those even before the pandemic. And then you have an industry that was largely cut down as far as like shuttling people around. That wasn't really happening that much during the pandemic. People were ordering food through Uber Eats and stuff like that. But there were a lot of problems with those jobs beforehand. So I think when people rethought what they want to be doing with their lives, they're like, maybe not this thing that uh, doesn't seem to be paying enough for a lot of people and that a lot of people are having problems with. Right. But you know, as you mentioned, not that these people that were searching this stuff are going to go out and actually get those jobs, but it's it's just a good indicator and definitely mirrored what was happening through the pandemic. Demand for services uh, were skyrocketing for things mm-hmm. like uh, therapists and psychiatric jobs. You know, a lot of people were having a right. really tough time throughout the pandemic. And and these are the things that they you know were looking to see if maybe they can make an impact in. Um, so just a, yeah. an interesting look at the whole thing. Right. You see a lot of people wanting to help other people. Uh, you saw a lot of people in general just turn to therapy. So, like, I think that gave people a little bit more of it made them more aware that this is a thing, you know, um, and you also have increased levels of mental distress among so many people right. going through so much right now. So when people are considering what they want to do with their lives, they're saying this is an option and you know, maybe I want to help someone and do this. Ronnie Mola, senior data reporter for Recode at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks again for having me. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.